You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. So let's let's make a start. Um, firstly, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We also extend our respect to any First Nation person present with us today, acknowledging that sovereignty was never ceded, and recognizing that. This Aboriginal land has for generations been characterized by living in harmony with nature, a theme that we hope that tonight's um, screening would prompt you all to consider. So with that in mind, on behalf of the Lightweight Structures Association and the M Pavilion, I bid you all welcome to this special screening of the Fry Auto Spanning the Future. I am Peter Lim and we'll moderate a brief discussion after the screening of the film um, to discuss a bit more about the movie and the man. Despite being a very acclaimed name in the world of architecture, it is a tragedy that um, Fry Otto was not that well known uh, among the general public. He first rose to fame in the 50s, when he started doing work with fabrics, tensile fabrics, steel, lightweight steel, lightweight aluminum, creating tension structures. It is, however, quite um, interesting that uh, over the years, he's starting to gain more recognition. And we start seeing names like Norman Foster and Zaha Hadid cite him as a major influence, introducing new generations to his uh, work on lightweight architecture, his interest in the natural environment at the Institute of Lightweight uh, Structures, his sense of social responsibility, and his foresights into the needs of the future. But I hope tonight's documentary will not only just give the, um, the insights to architects and engineers, but provide a portrait of a more complex man with a fascinating life story and also a very novel thoughts on architecture and a truly impressive body of work. As I alluded to earlier, it is perhaps fitting that here on the land where for a millennia, First Nation people have lived in harmony with the natural world, we reflect on Fry Otto. He is a man with an architectural vision centered on creating harmony with nature. He believed that every detail needed to be in congruent with the laws of uh, the universe. He created forms and designs, taking into account the scarcity of material, but also at the same time, the insatiable humankind's needs for new things. So 
his scientific experimentation with artistic imagination in solving the problems of shelter in this shortage of uh, shortage ridden world truly truly illustrates his genius and talking about the visionary i have to mention another person and his name is simon chu uh, he is the person that made this film extraordinary person he did this in his final year at the um, university of southern california bachelor of architecture he's currently doing research into tensile architecture and it is with him that um, we have the possibility of uh, seeing this film. And I also must thank the M Pavilion for providing such a wonderful venue for tonight's screening. It was a privilege um, for me to be able to work on this um, structure. And I hope that its own unique way, it carries forth the fusing of art, architecture, engineering, and captures a little of ourselves and our visions for a brighter tomorrow. So without much ado, um, we'll start the screening of Fry Auto Spanning the Future. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the, um, the film. It's uh, an hour sitting watching it, but it is a very thought-provoking and uh, life of a very remarkable man. Um, what I wanted to do was really to have a few minutes to um, look at some of the things that are in the film and then discuss that a little bit. And what I wanted to do was invite um, two uh, prominent academics uh, onto the stage. Um, the first one is Dr. Leanne Zilka. She's a lecturer and program head for uh, the Bachelor of Architecture at RMIT and also one of our co-collaborators collaborators on the uh, M Pavilion. So welcome, Leanne. And the next person I was going to invite up here was um, Dr. Alberto Pugnale. He's a senior lecturer at uh, Melbourne University at the School of Architecture as well. And he has a great interest in shell structures and tensile structures as well. So I invited both of them to come up. So I know it's... Um, it's been a long movie, but I think um, just to sort of discuss a few things and then um, let you all go. So one of the things I wanted to um, sort of ask both um, Alberto and also Leanne was one of the things that Fry Otto always said was that, how will we have to live in the future? So the question is, you know, what do you think? Is there grand developments that we see in the horizon of living in the future? from you know, the research that both of you are doing. Um, Leanne? Yeah, thanks, Peter. And thanks for the invitation and the movie really is you can watch it a thousand times and still learn. Um, so obviously climate is the biggest issue and when you look at those large span structures, you immediately just imagine there are vast parts of the city that will not, you know, Melbourne later so, but parts of the world where... Cities are just not going to be inhabitable without some kind of climate correction. So some kind of, you know, shelter that is almost permanent. It's sort of tragic and I don't think Fry Otto was approaching things in that way. But um, that sort of need for super efficient, large span structures, I think, are going to be a reality in, in some places. 
He also, I mean, he did have a very clever idea around, well, it was really Buckminster Fuller who was kind of very utopic in his way of sort of saying that, you know, all of humanity can have shelter with his systems. So I think um, it's pretty poignant at this moment. Albert? Well, in, in my view, what, I, what I've really learned from Fraioto and what I'm trying to teach my students is primarily the way he designs and uh, the way it looks at the minimal, minimum use of materials, structures, and there is a very clear method in designing uh, tensile structures or uh, grid shell structures, and you have to follow certain rules and you are constrained by those rules, otherwise you wouldn't be able to build that particular structural typology. Um, I believe that what we should do as academics is to be able to extend that way of thinking also to those other buildings that can be built even if they're not perfect, they're not ideal, they waste resources, and they're not made through a uh, coherent and successful design process or collaboration between architects and engineers or builders. So I think that is one of the main learnings that we should try to reapply as much as possible, especially nowadays where our students have very powerful tools to model more or less everything they want. Uh, making physical models is a way to be artistic and create any possible forms, but 3D models are even more powerful and so I feel that now our students have a wide selection of uh, possibilities and design options in front of them. We need to be able to narrow that down to what is really good and should be pursued. Hmm. Um, you brought up a point about 3D models and, and as you can see, Fry Otto did a lot of his work with um, the um, physical models. Do you think there is still a place for physical models? in sort of, you know, teaching and also in actually, you know, making structures as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there is, a, there is a lot of learning from physical models because uh, I can only speak with the limited experience I have with my students, but generally they struggle to say, um, they struggle with variations. Generally with physical models, students find that it's very difficult whenever you tell them why don't you generate five, six, even seven different options? They can't do that. They stopped after two or three because the physical models are constraining. Hmm. And they, they, they don't see that liberty that they have with digital tools. Hmm. And they, they start understanding that there are certain rules. And to generate variations, to generate, um, I would say interesting, but um, let's say, Variations that have a, a meaning or have a specific goal or specific design idea behind it, you have to stop and think about it. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it's a it's a good uh, way of starting to approach the idea of what structural for finding is, and then perhaps apply the same method to uh, the design of other buildings that don't necessarily need a form finding procedure. Mm. Can I just, I, I probably disagree a little bit with um, the lack, the, so the 3D tools that the students have are exceptional, but the problem we've got now is that there has to be a translation between what they can do in the digital realm and how it physically can manifest. And so obviously manually making those things are impossible, so that's where digital fabrication comes in. 
which is still a closer step to teaching the reality of what these things are. And even from this structure, we have all the tools. We was modelling like crazy, but these were done at one to two, um, even one to one um, prototypes that were done in the courtyard. And I think Peter would agree that if we didn't have those, this would have been much more riskier than it, than it actually was. So I think um, I'm teaching... Students are in the workshop with my um, work. We test lots of ideas in the, um, in the digital realm. We send it through structural analysis. We understand the material and the structural properties. But I tell you what, when they're actually using a vac former or um, a robot, they completely understand materiality in a totally different dimension. So I think um, the danger is to keep it in the digital and not bring mm. it out of the... Yes. I, I do agree with that as well. Um, the other thing, um, as you look into the life of Fry Otto, um, one of the things that, you know, um, he wasn't actually interested in creating um, one individual project, and it was more like he was conducting a series of uh, experiments and then evolving from there and creating this, you know, architectural vision that he had. I mean, do you think that we you know, as architects and engineers, we're, with the influence of the commercial world, we're actually looking at doing projects but no longer sort of pushing ourselves to evolve from one to the next? Or, or you don't, do you see a lot of that with the students going out? Um, so I think this where we're sitting is a really good example of um, experimentation at its best. Um, it's unbelievable that something like this is produced in a year from design to construction and um, it, it is quite, it goes through a whole, like this was one skin initially turned into three skins. So I think the innovation, unfortunately the commercial world underestimates the capacity of the architects and engineers and manufacturers um, to actually achieve things that are not in the ordinary. Students are always very inspiring because they, um, are very utopic, but not naively utopic in, in what what the future holds. So I think, sadly, you see you do see less and less, huh. but um, it's not it's coming out of the university pretty pretty um, venturous. Hmm. Albert, Albert, any words from you? Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm not sure I'm answering the question, but uh, what, what I feel that I, for example, in this pavilion and in many other projects that we've seen by Fry Otto, uh, there are, in pure architectural terms, I generally feel that we were mainly looking at roofs. And that's something that I, as an architect, I struggle with because it would generate uh, a few problems. For example, the footprint is very rarely a regular rectangular or square footprint, and that, that is an issue in the organization of the program. Uh, how do you deal with the connections to the grounds and the openings? Also in that case, do you add a wall and that disrupts the entire composition of the roof and the lightness of the roof, the elegance of the roof? Uh, how do you deal with light, windows, openings, any way of puncturing the structure? So there are all the elements and the issues that architects deal with in normal architecture, but they there is an extra level of complexity that is given by the curve. 
there, there was a very interesting article written by an Italian colleague in the 60s, and the literal translation of the title would be Beyond the Cubic Prison. It was written in the 60s in a period of exploration of uh, flourishing period for shell and spatial structures, and this colleague was really reflecting on what it means to design spaces that are not uh, regular and octagonal. Perhaps nowadays this is not as relevant as it was in the moment that Fray Otto was actually designing those, mm. because we see many more um, uh, organic, dynamic and fluid buildings coming up. But I think at the time it was, it has to be seen in that particular period, and it, and it was probably um, yeah, quite unique. Mm. The other theme that seems to come across on the film as well is that the, um, there is this blurring that Fry Otto have between the architect and the engineer. I mean, do you still, do you see that as relevant, that, you know, there is this blurring between the two of the in these structures, but do you see that being more sort of into prevalent into practice as well? I, I see that, I, uh, and going back also to the point of using digital simulation tools and physical models, I see on the one end we have that relationship between the architect and engineer, on the other end there is the digital that perhaps cannot be built, but in, that also triggers every time the reinvention of new tectonics and new, new ways of designing construction techniques, fabrication techniques that are new. So I think we have added to that complexity of, let's say, the continual, uh, continuous rivalry between architects and engineers. Now there is also the digital and the real, mm -hmm. and the fact that we don't rely on standard and conventional construction techniques. A anything that we design digitally might be constructed potentially in a new way. So there is also the digital and the real that are added to the equation and make it even more complex because both architects and engineers work in the digital and the physical real. Mm. Okay. I think it's still relevant. Still relevant, yes. Um, the other one that's always struck me is the IL. I mean, I, I have visited the IL and one of the things that struck me was the way that um, they, they were looking at it. They were trying to really combine, you know, sort of research, practice, and then teaching uh, into one single sort of environment. Um, do you see that that is a place for such institutions st now still? I mean, he had that from the, you know, 50s to now? Yeah, I mean, RMIT is that model. So, um, the people teaching there are in practice. The projects that the students are working on are real projects, so students are involved in, in not so much as that closely with this one, but the lessons and um, experiencing this is, is part of their learning um, experience. The PhD program is a practice-based PhD program, so it's understanding that designers have knowledge that they don't need to go into another discipline such as history and theory to um, extract new knowledge that within their discipline, within their own practice, there's a lot of knowledge that can be tapped and then, um, you know, turned into a dissertation. So that that exact model is what RMIT is based on. Yes, and then I think uh, Melbourne has the Melbourne model. So do you want to speak yeah. a bit more about that? Well, 
even though I think our reference is still, um, particularly for me, it's you know what Fray Otto and a few other colleagues said. Uh, the biggest difference for us is the numbers we're dealing with. So the number of students make a difference in the way we organize uh, the teaching. But the Institute for Lightweight Structures is still an operating institute in Germany. There is an, a parallel institute for computational design, which is also a very good institute. Um, I, I believe that Unimelb uh, can do things in a fairly similar way at the master's level, but at the bachelor's level where the number of students is uh, just so big and you That's have to deal the, with uh, classes of 300, 500 level. students, it, 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 makes you really it makes you really think what, what, you know, what, what we have to, uh, to do to reorganize and te our teaching in a way that th th there is that cohort experience there the students get to know who I am because most of my students probably don't even get a chance to talk to me in an entire semester. So I think the numbers is the challenge. At the master's level, it's entirely manageable because we're talking about 10, 16 students, and I believe the differences between RMIT and Unimelb are much smaller. Great. Well, um, I think that um, I will call this to a close now. I don't really want to keep you all here, but if you do have more questions about um, University of Melbourne, the models that they have in terms of their teaching, and RMIT, you know, by all means, talk more to Leanne and also to Alberto. Uh, and then also, thank you all very much for coming and watching the film. Um, and if you do um, want to sort of um, see more of the film, just let us know. Um, you can contact me at the uh, Lightweight Structures Association of Australasia if you want to see more screening of the film again as well. We can look at arranging that as well. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>